everybody. This is episode 43 of Artist Soapbox. Hello, and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassain. Hold on to your hats, my friends, for this masterclass in playwriting with Ian Finley. You may want to listen to this with a pen and a notepad because Ian covers some ground. Dramatic structure, writer's block, revision, adapting historical events, the value of arts education, working with what you have, and the importance of just finish it. You'll hear what I mean by that. Ian Finley holds an MFA in Dramatic Writing from the Tisch School at New York University. He served as resident playwright for Raleigh's Burning Coal Theatre Company from 2004 through 2012, when he was named the Piedmont Laureate in the field of playwriting and screenwriting by the Arts Councils of Central North Carolina. He is the author of plays including The Nature of the Nautilus, which was the winner of the Kennedy Center's 2002 Gene Kennedy Smith Award, and There Was War in Heaven, which was a finalist with the O'Neill National Playwrights Conference, Native, The Greeks, 1960, Jude the Obscure, Suspense, 1150, and The Hour History Cycle of Site-Specific Plays for Burning Coal. Ian Finley is also a theater educator, regularly teaching classes for Burning Coal, the Cary Playwrights Forum, the NC Writers Network, and the OLLI program at NC State and Duke. He serves as head of drama at Research Triangle High School, where he oversees a theater program that involves over a quarter of the student body and produces four full productions and a season of improv each year. Here we go. Hi, Ian. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. I want to talk about some things that you are particularly passionate about. Mm-hmm. And I know that that one of these things is dramatic structure. As a playwright and educator, you are very passionate about the value of understanding and implementing dramatic structure. Prior to this uh, conversation, you said, a play is a machine and every gear has a purpose. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about what you mean by dramatic structure and why it excites you? So. You have to understand, I'm terrified of needles, just terrified of needle, needles, but I love tattoos. Um, so I was 35 before I got my first tattoo, and I have two of them. At the same time, I have a cross on this arm, and then I have a diagram of Aristotle's dramatic structure on my left arm, because it is that important to me. It, I really think if you understand the stupid little line, you understand how plays and movies work. And if you if you get that that one little thing, it's, it's like a, a, a lens, and if you know how to look through it, you can see a play and you can look at your own writing and get it. Um, and it's so simple. We call it Aristotelian structure because Aristotle noticed it, but it's not. Every time I say that, people go, oh, it's old fashioned. It's old white dead guys with columns. And it's, it's, it's not that. It's Aristotle watched hundreds of plays and he observed if you do this, the audience gets bored. And if you do this, the audience gets interested. So Aristotle didn't invent it. He observed it. It's a natural phenomenon. It's a way to keep the audience interested because audiences get bored super, super fast. Um, the way to keep them interested is conflict, uh, what the, the Greek called agon, which is the same root we get agony from, right? And so all the dramatic structure is, is a way of 
producing agon, producing conflict in every scene. Um, and it's very much like uh, if you do like short story writing or novel writing, you've seen that little witch's hat. You've got the diagram right there mm-hmm. uh, called Freitag's Pyramid. And it has some of the same parts, but that's, it's a very, Freitag has a very loose structure. Um, you know, the parts are all sort of different sizes and it can be very variable because you can pick up and put down a novel. You, you, you can't do that with a play. You can't say to the actors, eh, I'll come back later. You just, you hang around here. I'll come back maybe next Next week and we can pick this up again. The play has to take place within two hours or one hour or ten minutes, and therefore dramatic structure for a play is super, super tight. You know, your stasis is 10%, inciting incident, rising action, point of transformation, that's 85%. You've got your climax at the end, and then your falling action, your your uh, your resolution is like 5% of the, of the play. It's a very, you, you see how, like, how steep Ian is it showing is. me the tattoo on yes. his shoulder of this <laughs> of this line. It is it is there. Yeah. Yes. It's it's a very steep, like concentrated line. Everything has its um its own purpose. And because it's a it's a machine, ultimately. Um they uh the word playwright, you know, it's not W-R-I-T-E, you know this perfectly well. It's W-R-I-G-H-T, like a wheel right or a ship right. It's uh the the name refers to someone who builds something. It's a craft. Um and that is how a play works. It is it is built. Every part has a function in creating that agon and drawing the audience in. And if it's like any craft, if it is done with a high enough level of skill and a specific enough intention, it can be lifted up to the level of art, but it starts as a functional piece in that way. So when you are given a play by a student, for example, or you have your own play in front of you, how do you determine whether it meets this uh, structure. Sure. So there are six parts to it. So you've got the stasis at the beginning. This is where we meet the characters um, and we get to know the world of the play. And then you and that ends when the character's want is introduced at the inciting incident. And that want, the protagonist's want, um, is going to chart throughout. I mean, the, the word protagonist is, is a, a great word because, like I said, the point of a play is agon, right? Conflict. Um, if you have agon, you've got to have someone who starts the agon. The Greek word for start is proto. So if you have agon, you have a proto-agonist. Now we drop that second O, we just call them the protagonist. That's where the protagonist is. It's not necessarily the hero. Maybe about 80% of the time it is. It's not even the main character. It's the character. I mean, oftentimes it is the main character, but it doesn't have to be. It's the character whose want is strong enough to draw them through the agon and to cause the agon. So in Othello, Othello is the main character He's totally reactive. He doesn't do anything. The protagonist is Iago, who wants to destroy him, and then and that's the engine of the play. If you look at fences, you know Troy is the main character. He's dead for the last twenty minutes. Spoiler alert! Sorry, uh, <laughs> it's his wife. It's it's Rose who who has the want. She wants to hold this family together. She wants her son to succeed, and that want is the engine for the whole play. Even though we see a lot less of Rose than we do of. Um, than we do of Troy, um, but she's the engine. So the protagonist want is is revealed to the audience at the inciting incident, and that gets them interested, right? It's like now, are they going to get it or not? And that are they going to get it or not is the strongest question you can have the audience ask, and that's going to keep them involved and interested for the rest of the play. And then you've got your rising action, your point of transformation at the middle, something about the character or the conflict changes, and then the climax at the end. 
this is the other problem I have with Freitag's pyramid. Freitag puts the climax in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, you can't do that. That's our word. Aristotle came up with that word. It's a Greek word. Climax means from climb a ladder. It means the top of the ladder. Can't put the top of the ladder in the middle? Anyway, Freitag's perfectly fine for those people who are writing novels. For play, Aristotle, right? Climax, top of the ladder. And it's just the moment where that, did he get it or not? Did she get it or not? That's answered. It's yes or no. Um, And then... Falling action is just the consequences of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> which can be really bad. You know, the, uh, the question in Hamlet, right? He wants revenge. Does he get it? Yes. Consequence, everybody in Denmark is dead, right? Um, so those are the six points of the structure. And it's just a matter of, of looking. Is there a stasis? And during that stasis, is it long enough I can learn about the characters? Is it short enough I don't get bored? Inciting incident, do I do I know what the character wants and is that want strong enough to drive the action? Rising action, are there obstacles in the character's way? Uh, point of transformation, what changes? Climax, does he get what he wants or does he not get what he wants in a definitive way that is related to the protagonist? It can't be someone else coming and just giving it to him, right? Mm-hmm. The deus ex machina. And then is the uh, following action, does it wrap up those, uh, those remaining threads? Does it show us the consequences of that, that uh, attack? Um, and is it short, right? And so if you know those things, you've got a lens both when you're creating it, you know, does, does each of my sections of the play do this thing? But also when you're revising it, which is the biggest part of playwriting, it's like, oh, I, I've written plays before and I, you know, I preach this, I have it tattooed on my arm. Uh, my play Native was in its second reading at Deep Dish before I realized there was no climax. Mm. The moment that I thought was the climax did not relate back to the inciting incident. And it's like, oh, well, okay. So when you know what the pieces are supposed to do, then you can really look and say, does this piece actually do what I want it to? And if it doesn't, then you can change it and you can fix it because you know what the purpose of each moment is. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about revision because I know this is something else that is um, that you have strong opinions about, yes. and uh, <laughs> and I'm in agreement. Um, but your your assertion is that revision is seventy five percent of the work yeah. in writing a new play. Yeah. So I hate Lord Byron. Uh, <laughs> I I love his poetry. I love his poetry. What I hate about him and and all the romantics was this belief that they put forward that is still so prevalent um, that art is just given to you. Like the muse reaches down and you've got this great idea and you're inspired and you go off and you write it and it's and it's done. And it's a lie. It's a gigantic lie. Uh, and it's a destructive lie because it m- makes people feel that when they don't get inspired that way. That they're that they're they can't write that they can't create, um, and and it's a lie because that's not how Byron wrote at all. Byron wrote and then he revised. He he put the work in again. It's a craft, not an uh, an an art. The art comes out of the craft, right? The the working of the pieces. I remember my brother. My brother's a brilliant, brilliant musician and songwriter. Um, and in high school, he would give me like uh, his lyrics to take a look at, and I would then give him, you know notes and thoughts back and he would get furiously angry and once he just he cried out to me red face and anger why can't you just once say it's perfect oh. because that's and i think honestly that's what so many people when they give uh their scripts out for notes that's what they really want why can't you just once say it's perfect because they believe that byronic romantic idea of inspiration and it's a lie hmm. um the the first draft um really ought to be quite horrible 
Um, and I tell that to people. And often is. <laughs> and often is, and should be, right? Because if it's not, you're not trying anything. You're, you're, not, um, you're not experimenting. You're doing the safe, easy thing, if it's any good in that first draft. Um, greatness is next door to awful. It's like 10 miles away from good, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're ever going to be really great, it's got, you've got to allow it to be just miserable in that first draft. Um, and then you can fix it later on. Anything can be fixed. Once it's it's done, um, and it's an iterative process, right? You learn about the work by writing it. You don't learn about it by researching. You don't learn about it by outlining. Those are important things, uh, and you do need to do some degree of them. Um, but you learn about the characters. You get to know the characters. You get to know the world by spending time in that world, which means piling at pages and writing. And then once you've written it, you realize that 80% of it is crap and has to be thrown away. But it's not wasted time. The A percent is not wasted. It's how you got to know what you are actually writing. So the first draft is really what is really your real outline, right? Um, the second draft is like your your deeper outline, and then maybe by the third draft you get something that's sort of your first draft, right? Um, the the process of revision, I would say, is seventy five percent of the work. That first draft, maybe twenty five percent outlining, all that twenty five percent, and then revision is seventy five percent of that. Because anything can be fixed if you're willing to do that, and it's it's so hard because that is not what we're taught in schools. Um, I, having taught English before, I know this. the The curriculum is so big. The 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 um the Common Core, the standard course of study. There's just so much we have to teach, and I understand that. It means that there's not enough time for that deep revision. Now, I've got some great teachers at my school who really push revision, and they have had to structure their whole courses in order to make that happen, because usually it's you know you draft and maybe there's a week for revision, and so in those cases, revision isn't revision; it's editing, mm-hmm. um, which is a tiny little sliver under the whole revision um, umbrella. Um, so we're we're trained to think that that first draft has got to be pretty close to the final draft, and it's not true at all. It's a it's a terrible misunderstanding um, that takes you know years of even in college, unless you've got a good professor. You may be your first draft, maybe second draft, and then the third draft is turned in. Whereas with playwriting, I find that maybe by my fifth draft, I can show it to other human beings. By my tenth draft, it might be ready for an audience of some type. And by maybe draft 15 or so, and we're talking like full drafts where I've revised every page in there, maybe it's ready for production at that point in time. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, that's me. It's different for every person. But I think just understanding that there is that much revision um, it is a real revelation. But what it means, I know this is something we're going to talk about, but I'll, I, I get excited, so I'm talking about it now. Jump into it. Go. It means there's no such thing as writer's block because it means that that first draft that people get blocked on is to be awful. It's so awful to embrace the awful um, because it means embracing the good, right? Um, people get writer's block for a couple of reasons. One of them is they don't know where the, the, the play is going. If you've got an outline, that is to say if you know dramatic structure. You know your stasis. What's my inciting incident? What's my rising action? If you have a single sentence for each of those six parts, then you always know what's coming next. You may not know it very well, but you, you'll never know it very well until you write it. And then you write it and it's crap, but you, but you know what's coming next. Um, the other bigger reason for writer's block, which is, is really fear, right? That you're going to write something that's crap that uh, people won't like you or they'll think you're a bad writer or you're, you're a good writer and you've written a bad play. There's all these awful voices in our head. Um, and that 
prevents us from writing out of fear. Because if you were told, I'm going to give you a million dollars to copy down the yellow pages, right? Do people still know what the yellow pages are? <laughs> people could do that, They can right? Google that. They can Google it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they could copy that down and give a million dollars. Great. If I said, I'll give you a million dollars, give me 120 pages of just complete nonsense, just mash the keyboard. They'd have it the next day. If I said, I'll give you a million dollars if you write me a play, people would freeze up, right? I've got to write a million dollar worth play? Oh, it's, it's got to be good. And they, they'd lock up. So there must be something between the nonsense and the play, right? And it's that fear it's not going to be good enough. If you allow that the first draft is supposed to be bad, it's not supposed to be good. You are not supposed to show your first draft to anyone. This is my problem with writers groups, right? Is that people think, oh, I've got to show this to those people and they're real writers. They know um, what's good or not. And then they get nervous and they don't turn out any pages, mm -hmm. right? What makes you a writer is turning out pages. It's not going to Starbucks. It's not having a beret. It's not wearing a turtleneck. It's just piling up pages. And if you pile up pages, you're a writer. And they don't have to be good pages. They just have to be there and you're a writer. Um, writers groups are wonderful when we get to that revision process, which is 75% of it. But during the original drafting of it, and maybe the second and the third drafts, lock yourself in a garret, you know, that, that wonderful idea of a writer. It's a solitary pursuit at that point in time before it can become the wonderful collaborative pursuit it is later on. Um, because otherwise you're, you're holding yourself to too high a standard of goodness and you're not embracing that bad first draft. And if you embrace the bad, then there's no writer's block. You, you, can, you can write. and Even as you're writing, there are times I'm, I'm writing, it's like, this is crap. This is crap. I always write in Starbucks and people can hear me, I think, muttering to myself, this is awful. And I'll call my brother. It's like, this is the worst thing I've ever written. Is it, well, you said that last time. No, you don't understand, Ethan. <laughs> they will take away my membership in the Dramatist Guild. You said that last time. Ethan, you don't get it. So, so even though I, I, I say all this, the, the, the fear of the bad is still there for me. It never goes away. You just you learn to push through it at some point in time. And if you do, you end up with a draft, and it's awful. It's so bad. It's not, uh, and I say that, and people think, oh, it's maybe not that bad. No, it is. It's so <laughs> bad. And then you revise it, right? And then you revise it and revise it and revise it. I think of it, I call it the unwashed baby draft, because when babies are born, they're the ugliest things in the world. Um, and they're going to be adorable, right? Eventually, they, they will even grow up to be you know, men and women of great stature, but first, they're babies. And before they're babies, they're these awful, ugly little lizard things. And you don't show that to other people. You you wash them off and you wrap them in a little blanket and pull a little hat and booties on it. And once you've done that, then you show it to people and say, oh, it's so cute. And they know it's not what it's going to be, but it's still cute. But that's not the first draft. That's like three drafts later when it's got the, the, the hoodie on and the little boots and the, and the blanket. The unwashed baby draft you don't show to people because it's disgusting to anything <laughs> but its, its mother. Um, and, that's, and, and, and if you embrace that, there's no reason to be scared. There's no reason to be hung up on that draft. So you can just turn out the pages. Um, I, I'm working on a, a first draft. I had this great writing residency down in Southern Pines at the Weymouth Center. It's a huge gift. And I turned out about 60 pages of a first draft of the script, and it was so awful. I mean, I was, it was sort of demoralizing. I would sit down, and it's like, this is so bad. And it's like, Ian, yes, and you know it's supposed to be. Just get it going. And now I'm revising it. It's like, okay, this is, this is really bad. But I see now, having written the bad thing, where it can be good. And now I'm beginning the much more enjoyable work of crafting it into what it can be moving forward. Let's go back to that unwashed baby metaphor. Yeah. Having had a couple of babies, yes. I can say 
for certain that they are kind of gross when they come mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work getting them out. And writing that first draft is an enormous amount of blood, sweat, and tears. And you finally birth it. And it's ugly, but you love it. Mm-hmm. And then you... If using this idea that revision is 75%, looking into the future of revision, Mm -hmm. I know that I as a playwright can get really discouraged and exhausted at the idea of kind of, again, like raising up this baby for years and years and years because the birth process is just the tip of the iceberg. You got a whole long life with this creature, hopefully. So what would you say to encourage people when they're looking at all the revision that lays before them? So the good thing is revision, it's not like raising a child is not the same as birthing a child, right? It's a different type of, I'm sorry, I hit the mic. Um, It's... um, it's not intensive and acute in the same way. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's chronic pain as opposed <laughs> to acute pain. You're not literally in labor pains for the next 18 years. It's a different type of thing. And it's a, a joyful thing in its own way. Raising a child and revising a script is joyful in its own way. Um, and it is, it's a, it's a lot of work, absolutely. But I think taking that long view, um, which again, we don't get in school, so it's a, it's a bit of a mindset, uh, a paradigm shift, to use the fancy terms. Um, taking that long view, I think, it can be very heartening. Um, if you think of the of you know some of the the great writers, think of of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, In the Heights, I think, was a ten year process um, from when it was started to when it was finally produced. That's a decade, and he is. This is not some sort of slouch. Lin-Manuel Miranda is the hardest working man in show business. I think Hamilton was seven years realizing that it's a long, long process. Um, I remember uh, undergrad, my junior year, uh, we had to sing a song at the beginning of every year. It was an acting program. And this one kid, Josh Kaneski, came in and sang this song none of us had ever heard. It was the most beautiful thing. It's like, where? what is that song? And he had been working at the Sundance Playwrights Lab, and it was this song from a new musical they were working there called Spring Awakening. It was the song of Purple Summer. Um, and then years go by, and I don't hear anything about it. I thought, oh, I'm so sad that musical never got produced because that song was so beautiful. And then I'm leaving New York after grad school, and suddenly Spring Awakening is opening on Broadway. And it's the overnight hit, right? <laughs> overnight, my butt. Right. That was, I mean, literally years in that process. And these are for people who are established writers. So just understanding that the writing of a play, the crafting of a play, is not like making a meal. It's not even like maybe making a painting. It's like a grand sculpture. It's like a mural. Um, it's, you know, Sunday on the island of Le Grand Jot. It's a major work, and it's going to take many years. And it's, it's, uh, if you pace yourself for that, um, it can be, you know, rewarding to make those little things. And, and there are rewards along the way, right? Part of that process once you've got to that third or fourth draft, then you can begin to involve other people in it. I have, um, coming up next week, I'm getting together some friends just to do a kitchen table reading of that awful, horrible play because <laughs> it's now getting up to to about draft three. And it's like, now I can get actors in to read it. And it's still awful. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell them, it's like, these are dear friends of mine. They're um, part of my Dungeons and Dragons group who are all actors, which is magnificent. Um, uh, but they are... So I've, I've, they also fit all the parts for this play. So we're getting together. So they know it's going to be awful and they'll still love me because I will make them shepherd's pie um, <laughs> and get them very drunk. Um, uh, 
but that's you know th- those little rewards to hear it in the mouths of actors to work toward also help I think motivate that process, and it is a, it is a long one. Mm-hmm. Let's get more specifically sure. uh, into part of your process because you have a lot of experience um, dramatizing historical events. So mm-hmm. as part of the Our History series at Burning Coal, you researched and dramatized over 75, yes. that's a lot, separate stories of the history of Wake County. How do you approach this dramatizing historical events, especially events that are rooted in the place in which you live? Sure. The way into history, you, you, you begin with research. Um, you begin with the stories, and I've, I've worked with you know, great researchers, and I've, I've learned my own things. But then you leave that pretty quickly. Once you have the the ideas there, you start outlining and you start writing because the writing will tell you what else you need to research. Research is, uh, any writer knows this, right? It's a wonderful thing, and it's a rabbit hole. You can spend so many hours and weeks and years researching, and you feel that you're getting something done because you're working, right? You're burning calories, um, but it's not writing. Writing is the piling up of pages. So write and then let that tell you what you need to research because otherwise you you know you spend all this time researching and sometimes the research is really important there was a story i was thinking about this morning so i did a piece called native um which is uh, based on very true event between uh, uh uh richard wright um and paul green green was um adapting Richard Wright's novel Native Son for its Broadway premiere. This is 1941. And there was a conflict between them about the ending of the play. And we used that uh, EBZB Productions, David Zimbrunnen and Serena Ephart, uh, commissioned me to write that for them um, as, a, as a way of sort of exploring this idea about, you know, not only uh, class and race and privilege, but also how that interacts with the artistic process, right? It was this amazing sort of real moment. I hit the mic again, I'm sorry. Um, that sort of showed that conflict. But there was, so there's a lot of initial research on that because I had to get these people and get their voices and get their arguments right. And in that, um, I discovered that Wright had written a little scene, a mini play, he called it, about that exact conflict. It's like, I need to have this. Mm-hmm. There is no way I can write this play unless I've seen what Richard Wright turned this this scene into a play. Didn't stop me from writing. Um, it had been submitted to, I think, The New Yorker or something. It had never been published. Um, but now, the great thing is my mom is a genealogist, and she is the sharpest researcher you could ever hope for. I mentioned this to her within, I think, like less than a week. She had hunted this down to Wright's private papers at Yale University, at their library there. Oh, mom. Uh, she, amazing. This is what she does. It's yeah. like a superpower. Um, and then we wrote them, and they they sent me a PDF of it. It's amazing what you can discover. Um, so, But that didn't stop me from writing it. Once I got that, then I went back and I revised. And I, was, I was very gratified that I had gotten his arguments and his points correct based on the research I did have. Um, so, you know, there are pieces that you need sometimes, but that shouldn't stop you from writing. And the other thing to keep in mind, if you are writing historically, um, which is wonderful, right? Because I think it was, it was Twain who said, the problem with fiction is it has to be believable. Nonfiction has, has no such limitation. Um, real stories are, are some of the best stories. But the problem is getting too tied to the facts because your, pro- your, your job as a dramatist is to make people is to bring these people alive again, really, to make the audience 
engaged and involved in the history. It is not to tell them the full story and to hit every date and number um, and the number of kids and the number of wives and when they, they went on vacation. Your job is to bring them alive so that the audience goes and learns the full story. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to just make stuff up or go against what is researched, but your primary job is as a dramatist bringing this, not a documentarian. There are other people who are documentarians. Um, and that sometimes means there's going to have to be stuff that you leave out. Again, dramatic structure tells us that there are certain parts to every play. Um, and there may be parts to their life that are great, but they don't fit in with the mechanism of the play. So those have to be left out. And some things are going to have to be adapted and changed to better fit that structure. If you think of 1776, you know, great show, um, really makes the, the signing of the declaration feel live and present. There are a number of changes. You know, there's, it ends with the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which is, uh, you know, the, what, of course, how you would end a play about the making of the Declaration of Independence and they're going up and they're signing and the Liberty Bell is ringing. And it's, it's an astonishing ending. It never happened. Mm -hmm. The Declaration of Independence was never signed by all the delegates because the delegates couldn't get there. It took, I don't know, something like a year or so for the Declaration to be brought to the different colonies so people could sign it. Um, you can't put that on stage be a good way to end it. And so instead, we have this moment that gets to the truth of that in another way. Uh, similarly, Adams had several people was fighting with in Congress. It would have been too confusing to put them all on stage. So they are sort of combined into the characters of Rutledge and Dickinson. Um, the, the best example of that, I was thinking of this this morning, the best historical piece, I, I, I arguably maybe the best ever historical piece is Hamilton right? Because that piece, you want to talk about making someone dead alive? Mm -hmm. My students know the entire story of the first treasury, uh, first secretary of the treasury. That's astonishing. And Lin-Manuel Miranda stuck tremendously close to the truth, but he found a way, uh, a very important alteration to the truth that opened up um, the story. And that is he plays um, Hamilton. Hamilton was not Puerto Rican. Uh, Washington and uh, Jefferson were not African American. That is a big departure from the actual facts of the story. But it is a departure that opens up the truth of the story for the audience and makes it more relevant, that gets us closer to the actual point. Um, and so that's the role of the dramatist is not to get so hung up on the mere facts but to tell the story. Tim Miller has this great quote. He's a performance artist. It's all autobiographical work. And he says, everything in this piece is true. And most of it really happened. <laughs> and that, I think, is, is the real thing, is you've got to get to the truth of it um, and use the facts as a way there, but not be held back by the facts from getting to that truth. You are incredibly pr prolific. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, as you might get from from just this interview, I get excited about things. I bounce around a lot, and I just I get carried away sometimes. How do you write so much? Do you write every day? Like, what is your own personal writing practice? So I I have my dream job. I teach at an incredible high school. Um, I love teaching. Um, it is the thing that I think I'm probably best at, and it's also the thing I love most. And it was, it was a huge gift to realize that. Um, but there's this astonishing sort of side effect of teaching, and that is I have my summers uh, of, uh, to, to write, basically. So 
the heavy lifting um, uh, I tend to do in the summer. Uh, typically, summer is about drafting something um, or doing like a full set of you know five to ten revisions on something, and then I work on other stuff throughout the year. Typically, I write three days a week, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, um, simply because my during the school year we um, again prolific sort of stuff. We do a lot of shows at my school. This year, we're producing five shows um, and a full season of improv uh, at my school. So, uh, you know, two out of three school days, I'm there for 10 hours because we've got, you know, teaching and then there's rehearsal. Uh, but we don't rehearse on Fridays. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday throughout the school year are my typical writing days. And it, it doesn't take very long. You know, if you can uh, get away for an hour three days a week. I always write in Starbucks. It's a horrible habit. It started in New York because it was either write in my awful Roachville apartment or go to Starbucks. So I did that and you just get into the habit, right? So now I do all my writing at Starbucks. Um, God bless my, my students. They give me like um, uh, gift cards to Starbucks uh, so I can I can go and I can write. It's very kind of them. Um, so, but But if you just go like three hours a week, right? And you can turn out, let's say, four pages within that hour, um, which is not insane. And, and some, and, and that's an average, right? Some days you work and you're lucky to get a page. Some days you might get eight, and that's tr- terrific. But if you can average four pages a day, three days a week, that's 12 pages a week, which may not seem like much, but if you're considering that a f- complete full-length play is 120 pages, that's 10 weeks to draft something or to do a complete revision on something. And 10 weeks is a long time, but it's better. You know, so many writers spend years and years um, without sort of making a lot of progress because, again, they're waiting for the muse to reach down and touch them instead of just getting in there and turning out pages every week, even if they're awful, maybe especially if they're awful. Um, So that's that's my goal. I don't get it always. but I, I get it pretty regularly. Um, I remember Doug Wright, he was uh, one of my, my teachers at, at NYU, said, I wish I could tell you that I went in every day and I had a piece of dry toast and I wrote my, I wrote my 10 pages for the day, and that would be a lie. What typically happens is I spend time sharpening pencils um, until the deadline's too, too close, and I lock myself uh, in a hotel room with a bottle of bourbon <laughs> over the weekend and I just get it done. Um, and so, and there, have, there have been those experiences for me um, to try and, and just knock things out. But I find it's a lot easier for me just to chip at it away just you know, maybe three days a week. And if I can get, it's like the gym, right? If you can do it even one day a week, well, at least you did it this week. And and it's bad to, um, uh, to get in the way of the good because it's not ideal. Well, I didn't get to go three times this week, so why even go once? Once is better than, than zero. It's a whole order of magnitude better than zero. Three is only a little bit better than one. Right. So it's the same thing with writing. Right, right. The program that you are the head of at Research Triangle High School is giant, as you alluded to, (laughs) and you have built that over time. You also built a Department of Education at Burning Coal. So I have two questions. And the, the first is, what do you see as the value of arts education? And then the second is, how did you approach growing these two programs? Excellent. What all oh, these great questions. Okay. So the first one is a deeply profound question, so I'm going to struggle to answer it. Um, I sometimes feel bad about teaching theater 
in that I get students passionate about theater because I mean that's the goal of any teacher is to get their students passionate about their subject. Um, and then many of them then want to go into that as a career, and that's not always a good choice, right? I, I I literally get calls and emails from parents who are upset that their student likes the subject I teach so much, and it's like okay, okay, uh, but but I do understand it, right? Um, but I do not fool myself to think that many of my students will go into this professionally any more than someone who teaches math thinks that their students are going to go in and become professional mathematicians. You teach math, you learn math to build the problem-solving muscle in your brain, mm -hmm. right? It's like it's like weightlifting for your mind is math. Um, I, I hate it when students ask in math classes, like, when am I going to use this? You, you're not going to use it any more than you will use picking up and putting down a heavy weight, right? <laughs> That's just the exercise that trains the muscle you will use. Doing math trains the muscle you will use to solve problems. Doing theater trains the muscle you will use to connect to other people, uh, to communicate, to understand, to use your physical instrument and your vocal instrument, um, and to begin to see perspectives different than your own. I mean, so there are muscles that are built there. But there's another thing on top of that. Um, the practical grant writing side of me really wants to emphasize, oh, these are the skills that you get from theater education and all that. But, but the true part of me really believes that the point of an arts education is to allow students to realize that art is, is for them. It's not for somebody else. It's not for those people who have been touched by some muse that doesn't exist. It is something that everyone can be part of as a maker. And once you've been a maker, then you can appreciate being an audience member. So it is, it is practically speaking, again, the grant writing side of me is also building our audiences for the future and is giving them you know, giving our theater companies an audience and giving the audience the gift of that. But it's it's not just that practical thing. It is really letting students know that they are capable of being part of this creative community, that they are capable of having that in their life. It is not some God-given thing to somebody else. You're not special because you can make uh, art. You can make art because you're a human being and that is special enough. Um, so to me, that is the purpose uh, of an arts education, on top of the the very practical skills and very practical understandings that you you get from that, um, the the other question you asked about how to build a program, um, and the answer is slowly, right? right. It's the same as writing um, a, a play. You know, you have to have a first draft, and then you have to revise and revise and revise. Um, my current school, like I said, it's my dream job. We just finished our sixth year. We're a very new school. We're heading into our seventh year uh, uh, in two weeks from now. <laughs> um, and that first year, we were in this sort of very ad hoc building. Um, uh, didn't have a theater space. We actually performed in basically what was a wide hallway there for the for the um, the three years that we were in that space. Um, but you know, you do what you can. That first year, we only had one class, just the freshman class. So it's like, okay. We're not going to be able to do big scale things, but we did something, right? Just again, like lifting weights, like building the muscle, you do a thing to start developing and you start small. Uh, a big issue I, I have is that many people wanting to, to start something, start big, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's because maybe they're afraid that they're not going to have time to get to that big thing. And they, they want to get to that big thing. They want to do 
um, uh, uh, you know, this year we're doing the House of Bernardo Alba. I love that play. Um, I've wanted to do it for years, but I didn't start with that because I, I, I trusted that there would come a time we would build up to that. Um, so start very small and first couple of years doing plays, you know, I look back on and they're, I'm almost sort of embarrassed by them. They're very sort of rinky dinky. Um, uh, uh, Gina Winter, the great, uh, theater teacher from Apex, uh, retired a few years back. She would call them her Mickey Mouse plays, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're so just nothing, but they start to build that muscle. And then over time, you build up and up and up. It's about having the long view of it. Uh, Bill Ball in his book, A Sense of Direction, which if, if I can just plug one thing, A Sense of Direction is the most valuable text on the theater ever written, in my opinion. I would rather have that book than my entire MFA training. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So Your desert many. island It is. I have book. my original copy from Underground, and I would say every three pages is dog-eared. I mean, there's something on every three pages. It's like, I need to remember this. Um, I go through, I reread it every five years or so just to remind me why I do theater. It's so magnificent. But he talks about the fact that you can't say, I can only be creative if I have these, these tools. I can only paint murals. That's what I do. I'm a muralist. I have to have this. No, you're creative with what you're given. If someone gives you the back of a napkin, you're creative on that. And if you're creative on that, someone is going to give you some crayons. And if you're creative with the crayons, someone's going to give you some watercolors. If you're creative with the watercolors, someone's going to give you oil and canvas. And if you're creative with that, someone's going to give you the mural. You don't say, I can only do this thing. I can only work at this particular scale or if I have these resources. No, you look at the resources you have and you are as creative as you can be with those. And if you are, the universe will notice and give you the next step. And it's only like the next step, right? You've got to work it over time. Um, But... Everything that's happened to me good in my career has been because I said yes to some random little thing that led to the next random little thing, which led to the next random little thing. And after enough random little things, suddenly there are random big things. Um, but it's not because I, I, well, I need to have that, that big thing. No, you say yes. Um, and you can't say yes to everything because you'll eventually you'll, you'll, you'll burn out. But you say yes to enough things that will introduce you to enough people that will open enough doors that eventually you're painting that mural. Um, and of course, you have to have a strategy for that. Um, working with Burning Coal as uh, the Department of Education, the biggest thing I learned and the most valuable skill for a creator of, of theater, I think, maybe creator of all art, is how to make a spreadsheet. Uh, that was, you know, to be able to make a project plan, a budget, to be able to step back from the the creative side of it and structure it out very much like dramatic structure in some way. I know I keep coming back to that, but that you have a big picture uh, and that big picture is structured and there are steps to it and there are little boxes and the boxes add up properly. Um, and if you can do that, then you can afford to be creative on the small steps and over time build a program. Wonderful. It amuses me that people who call themselves creative put these uh, boundaries around what it takes to do their creative work mm-hmm. so you have to if you if you think you are a creative person then you might need to be creative about how to get creative yeah. so you know you know what <laughs> yes, i mean i mean I, I certainly have in you know 20 years ago like well i need absolute silence to create and i need a special mm-hmm. kind of pen and i need to be looking out yeah. on this vista and it's like now i got 15 minutes yeah. so i can that's what i have and i'm going to get creative with how i can use those 15 minutes in the most effective way the most efficient way yeah. so that i can keep moving forward because 
there are so many ways that we can stop ourselves from making work. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is you have to not only use what you have, but you have to get started. Yeah. And, you have, and then you can build over time. Yes. Just do it. I had this, this great professor, Charlie Papura. He died a few years ago. God bless him. Huge man, uh, Brooklyn. He smoked cigars in class. He was great. And he was just relentless about this. He would, he would just scream at you, just finish it. And, and you, you'd be, well, I'm not really sure where I'm going. It doesn't matter, puff, puff, puff. It's a first draft. Just finish it. Um, and he was relentless. And that voice is still in, in my head. And, and it connects to something. I should have mentioned this earlier with revision. Revision is huge. But don't revise until you've got a first draft. It's like if you're building a bridge, right? You don't get halfway over and say, oh, no one can drive on this bridge. This is an awful bridge. We need to put in asphalt and paint lines and put in, in street lights because the bridge will collapse and everyone will die. Um, that's like trying to revise before you get to the end. This is why so many writers have like five half-finished scripts, right? They, st they realize it's crap going through and they're not wrong. It is. It's supposed to be. And they start trying to fix it before it's done. And it's Zeno's paradox. The further you go, the slower it gets. You'll never get to the end. Whereas if you just finish it, just sit down, just get it done in 15 minutes here and 15 minutes there um, and ignore the fact that it's bad. And I'm, I'm not saying it's not bad. It's not right. Pablum saying, oh, it's, it's actually good. It's not good. It's awful. It's supposed to be awful. But if you just hear that growling voice of just finish it, eventually you'll get it finished and then you can revise it and make it not awful. But you've got to finish it first. And that means piling up the pages. And it means getting out of your own way. It's, it's you know, I, it, I, I don't need to have, you know, my, my, I don't even need to be in the Starbucks. I've, I've, I've forced myself at times where I couldn't just to sit down in my room and write and I hate it and it itches, but it's not, I've got to get these pages done. And if you do, eventually they'll pile, they'll pile up. It's just one more way, as you say, that we get in our own way. I think we get in our own way because we're, uh, we're afraid. We want it to be good so badly. That, and if maybe I'm in the right place and the right mindset, it'll be good. It doesn't have to be good. It can be bad. It ought to be really bad. You know, go right in a horrible place and it'll be awful and that's good because it'll get you closer to that greatness that it could be. Right. What is next for you? Oh, gee. Um, okay, so I've got two scripts sort of out in the world right now. Um, one of them is a play called Native, um, which I, I mentioned before, um, and it's touring North Carolina. So it's going to be, I think, playing at ECU sometime this, this year. Um, that's great. That's my first play I've ever written that I've gotten royalties from. And that's so nifty. Like you go to the mailbox and there's just a check there. It's like <laughs> magic. It's fantastic. Um, and then there's another script called And There Was War in Heaven, which was the script I wrote was a finalist for the O'Neill competition. Because of that, this amazing uh, director and dramaturg, J.D. Cottle, has picked that up um, and is working on that for production in Chicago in the next little while. So those are two pieces that are like out in the production world. What I'm working on right now, um, I'm doing a few short things for uh, the North Carolina Museum of History uh, in October. Um but the the big ones are two pieces for Seed Art Share, which is Renee Wimberly's company, and they do site specific work. One of them 
um, was a piece uh, that was pitched to me by Sue Scarborough, who I want to be her when I grow up so bad. She's just amazing. Um, but she suggested a piece called Grim and Grimmer, um, where for an hour we had, it's a family piece. So an hour we take kids and we, we do sort of fairy tale theater with them while we get their, their parents drunk, basically. <laughs> and then we swap and we do some, uh, with the kids, we do some sort of interactive educational stuff. And then we show the parents the adult versions of those fairy tales because many of those fairy tales are quite dark. Um, and, and also very evocative, right? I love the Pied Piper, right? Because it's it's a it's a fairy tale for kids about the loss of innocence and the loss of children. I mean, it's so thematically rich. So I'm working on that, and then I'm working on um, a piece called Greener, which is for two apartments. Um, the idea that the shows would actually be done in two apartments that can look into each other. Um, the, the conceit being, you've got these two apartments that can see each other in these two couples, a younger couple and a middle-aged couple who both sort of see in the other one what they think they're missing in their life. And the audience sees it from both perspectives. They see one act in one apartment and then they switch and see the same the same events from the other apartment, literally. So these are actual apartments. This yes, is not, these are not stage apartments. Exactly. That's why Seed is doing it because they do like right. site-specific pieces. <clears throat> I'm writing it so it can be done like with stage departments, um, but Ideally, we find two apartments that can look into each other. And if anyone can find that, Renee can. Um, and so I'm working on that. Those are both for uh, spring of 2019. That is awesome and exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you. For being here. What an incredible conversation. There's so much to think about. And I am so excited to see all these pieces that you're working on. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. You can support the podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. We are recording in Shadowbox Studio in Durham, North Carolina, shadowboxstudio.org. For show notes and lots of other information, you can go to our website, artistsoapbox.org. Thank you so much, Ian. And we're out. <laughs> <laughs>